everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Check the Stats podcast. I'm your host, Mike Leon. As always, this series will live on theanalyst.com. It's available wherever you get your podcast. If you like what you hear, come on, you know what to do by now. Whatever podcast platform you listen to us, click on that subscribe button and leave me a five-star review and comment, please. As always, in each episode, we'll examine how sports stats are used by coaches, players, scouts, trainers, and broadcasters alike as part of their everyday profession. Now, this episode is going to be special to me, folks, because Saturdays in the fall is synonymous with college football. And it all started with my alma mater, the birthplace of college football, Rutgers University. You know, a lot of people don't know this. We defeated Princeton back in 1869, six scores to four scores back then, a little different scoring metrics. And it's continued ever since from classic games like Doug Flutie's Hail Mary pass against Miami, the phantom PI call in the national championship game with Ohio State and Miami, famous players that have taken the gridiron like Bo Jackson, Michael Vick, Reggie Bush, legendary broadcasters from Gus Johnson to my personal favorite, this is Keith Jackson. Traditions like dotting the eye at Ohio State, a whiteout night game in Happy Valley. I've been to one. It's phenomenal. To the jump around at Wisconsin, to the in-state rivalries like the Iron Bowl, Alabama and Auburn, the Holy War, one of my personal favorites with BYU and Utah, and in-state rivalries like USC, UCLA, which our guest today had a prime seat under center as quarterback, and that is Max Brown. Today, Max is an analyst on the USC radio network. He's a color analyst on TV for the Pac-12 and stadium networks. And he's the host of a fantastic digital short series called Pocket Presence with Max Brown. And it's available on the Pac-12 Network Insider or Pac-12 Network Now app. Check out that show. It's fantastic. Today, Max is going to share with us what stats he used when he was playing under center that maybe gave him an edge. What it was like under center going up against a Nick Saban coach defense. Only one of us on this show has done that. And what stats tell him as an analyst when he's trying to help craft the picture for his audience. Like I mentioned, Max Brown, uh, an analyst for Stadium and Pac-12 Networks, the host of Pocket Presence. We're going to get into that in a bit with Max because I was watching the Monday Night Football game as a Raiders fan and uh, throwing stuff at my TV. But seeing Eli and Peyton break down stuff, Max does a great job on his show. Max, welcome to the Check the Stats podcast. Thank you for hopping on with me today, buddy. It's awesome to be back. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, congratulations on the engagement. Thank you. They say the best uh, formation in football is victory formation. That's the that's, that's the best knee I've uh, I've taken. So glad I got a yes. That's awesome. That's awesome to hear. Victoria is going to be happy, and, and that'll be a soundbite that'll be played throughout uh, the rest of their marriage. Um, so Max, let's get into right away. Obviously, I mentioned in the intro before you hopped on. Uh, your, your college and high school career. But one thing I didn't mention was how did you use stats when you were playing, when you were breaking down film of an opponent, of an opponent, how did you use statistical information that was handed to you about the opponent? Did it give you an edge? Take us into the ways that you break down statistical information when you were a player. When I was a player, the stats always helped get the big picture of the defense that I was about to face. To be honest, as a quarterback, I wasn't really worried about what their kicker was doing or what their what the opposing offense was doing. But walking into a Monday meeting, the stats of a defense gives you a flavor for their identity. Are they a team that's great on third down? Are they a team that 
you know, it was right versus the run versus the pass. How many, how many yards does an, uh, the, the teams that have played them before us get per game? And so it's more of a, a high level description of, of what this defense does. How, how many sacks does their defensive line get? But I'll be honest as a player, it's at least in, in, in my opinion, from when I was in college from 13 to 17, the stats available were helpful, but at the same time, there's a point where you just got to go play and you, you got to get out there and you got to go, you got to go execute. I, I will say actually the one statistic that did stay front of mind for me when I was literally on the field playing was what are it, what's a defensive coordinator's tendencies on third down. So that's gibberish for, for some listeners. It's how many times does he blitz on third down? What percentage coverage does he walk or does he bring out? Um, on on third downs because that's those are the money downs so to speak in football lingo and knowing what to expect was vital as a player then so now you've transitioned obviously I mentioned the two networks that you work at as an analyst and you recently posted on social media this huge play sheet which we're going to get into in a sec and it has all the stats and info on players but take us through how you prepare to call a game and then what stats are you looking for that you think will help tell the audience a preview of the game and then within the game itself it's funny, the preparation as a color commentator is, is similar in some respect to a quarterback in that I try to section it off day by day. And it's like a, it's truly is a game week trying to early on in the early on in the uh, in the week, you get a, a flavor for the personnel and whatnot. And then the two big items are the, the coaches interviews that we have during the week. So yesterday I for an hour, I spoke with uh, Arkansas State staff and obviously being a West Coast guy I'll, I'll be honest haven't consumed a ton of Arkansas State football but that's my job in the weeks leading up for it to it so it's watching their film it's getting a flavor for their talent it's uh and and bless the, the athletic departments but they send us a, a 30 page notes packet that's probably in the front of every program for the the, the 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 loyal fans but we get the the broadcaster version of that and trying to read every word of that and, and making sure I immerse myself in this team and then like tomorrow I'm, I'm calling Washington's game. So or on Saturday, I'm calling Washington's game. So I'll talk to their staff tomorrow and get a flavor for their team. But in terms of specific stats as a, as a broadcast that I'm looking towards, it's that, that's, that's the funny parallel with playing is it's a lot of the same stats I look for when I was playing. So it's, you know, what, what percentage is a, is a defensive coordinator bringing this coverage versus that coverage? It's, Third down, how efficient is a team on third down? It's turnover margin, uh, how, how have they performed in the past? It's all those, I'll, I'll call them buzzwords or buzz items that you always kind of hear in post-game interviews. I need to be well-equipped to address that. What's the percentage of run versus pass that an offense, that offense has done? How good is a team in, this, in the second half versus the, the, the first half type of deal? What's their red zone efficiency? That's a big one as well because as a broadcaster, I need to be able to, uh, to talk on that. So it's funny. It's that it's the, as, a, as a former player, you try to tap into the things you were focused on as a player to help bring that narrative to the broadcast on a Saturday. That is funny. You know, we've had other analysts on as well. Ray Lucas, who does the Jets uh, over here in New York, um, mentioning something similar about third down efficiency and red zone. Like those were always the two stats that he looked at as an analyst. Um, it's funny that we're going to get onto the FCS in a second because obviously our stats perform top 25 for the FCS. There's been a bunch of FCS over FBS up, uh, upsets this year. You called two of them um, and had a front row seat for Eastern Washington over UNLV and, and Montana winning at Washington. We're going to get into those games in a second, but what's a stat for you 
that you think in college football right now is, is too overused? And then what's, what's a stat that you think is maybe either underused or like you rely on a lot and you're like, this is a true statistical measurement of like how the game went. It's a really good question. The top of mind answer to the, to, to part a of that is time of possession. And I'm sure that's a common answer, but I don't want to reinvent the wheel. Cause I do think that's, that's spot on in terms of a stat that's probably overused. And I noticed it with some of my old school coaches in terms of they would tap into time of possession talk and the importance of that in terms of winning a game, but it is not as groundbreaking as it was 15 years ago. And for listeners that might not piece that together, that was the go-to stat. If we did this interview 15 years ago and you said, Hey Max, what's the key stats you look for? I'd say time of possession, time of possession. Cause that was just the world of football is if you controlled the football, that meant your offense is on the field. So that must mean that you are having a successful day, successful day, putting up points. And then the air, the, I'll call, I'll say Oregon, but also coupled with the air raid changed that narrative. So I'll go, I'll go, um, time of possession and underused. I'll go, I'll go percent uh, red zone efficiency in the sense of how many times do you score a touchdown versus a field goal? I think oftentimes when we talk about those numbers, it's how many times did you score? Cause it's easier to, verbalize that way. How many times you score? How many times you score? But the teams that win and the teams that put pressure on their defense, they score touchdowns. They don't necessarily score field goals. And so that ratio is always front of mind for, for me as well. Max, I alluded to the FCS upsets over the FBS teams. You were at two of those in person, uh, obviously Jacksonville State winning that last second Hail Mary, and everyone's going to analyze what Norville did on defense there over Florida State. Um, FCF's level football for you, not only as a former player, but now as a color commentator, you just alluded to it in a sec. Um, how hard is it to, to give statistical information to folks that really don't watch these teams? And then how underappreciated is FCS football in your eyes that you've seen some upsets right now? Uh, my school Rutgers is playing one in a bit and Delaware who's ranked in the top 10. So how, how underappreciated is it in your eyes? Very much so. And I'm a guy, my, my best buddy played for Eastern Washington, who is a very prideful FCS program, always in the thick of it in terms of out here, um, in, in their conference, the big sky. And then also nationally, they're always competitive. And uh, you alluded to it. I called the UNLV Eastern Washington game. And the joke is I've called two games so far this year and, and both times FCS schools have, have pulled away with the upset. So if you want to win, hire me as the uh, color commentator, but uh, no, Eastern Washington's a team that went into UNLV and they're just a better team. There is no fluke about it. They were just a straight up better football team and, and UNLV there's, they're not a power five program, but they're a program with, you know, much more resources than, than Eastern Washington, but that's kind of what you've, what you've come to expect. So definitely underappreciated. I've always, um, especially being a, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest and there were years where Eastern Washington's competing for an FCS title and Oregon state and Washington state were some of the worst teams in power five football, if we're, if we're being honest. And so they would always schedule each other. And it was, it was, it was interesting. And obviously every guy on Eastern Washington staff has a chip on their shoulder or on their team has a chip on their shoulder. And I've always admired that because it's, it's not always easy playing for an FCS school and whatnot. And for me, when I break down their rosters, the starters, I think can always match up fairly well with power five starters in terms of there's not an, an incredibly big drop-off. 
But the second you start tapping into the backups, that's where you notice a drop off the lack of depth when you start comparing them to a, a power five school and always impressed every time an FCS school, you know, gives a, gives a big dog a run for their money. So I want to get into one of the big dogs because Washington was preseason top 25. You had a front row seat as Montana and Gavin Robertson, the, the Arizona transfer. He had two interceptions. Looks like a good player at the next level, potentially. Well, I'm going to defer to you on that. But how was Montana able to go into Washington and win that game? They haven't won there in ages. There was a stat I saw about, about that. But how, how were they able to get that road win? And also, what is going on with the Huskies? I'll bring out some stats to answer that question. They were tremendous on third down. They got off the field. You always, that's a buzzword. Get off the field, get off the field. Montana found a way to get off the field, whether it may not have been great on first and second down, but finding a way to have Washington stub their toe on third down allowed, didn't, didn't allow the Huskies um, to get some drives going. They created a ton of pressure on Dylan Morris. I don't know the exact, I don't remember the exact number on the top of my mind, but in terms of pressure on the quarterback, they got it done and turnover margin. They forced turnovers. And anytime you're an FCS team, we talked with Butch Jones yesterday from Arkansas state, Arkansas state's not a mountain West team or a FCS team, but they are a team that's, you know, uh, doesn't have the talent that a Washington has. And he says, we gotta, we gotta get this game into the fourth quarter and make it a, uh, a fourth quarter fight, but you're going to do that by muddying up the game, creating turnovers, creating big explosive plays. That, that was a stat we kept track of when I was at SC is how many plays it was offensively, how many plays above 25 yards can we get a game? And I believe the number we wanted there was five. Um, that was, and why that was the case, I'm not sure, but I remember we tracked that. And then defensively, it was, we, we have to give up less than five plays of 15 yards or more. And that was kind of the sense that coaches had to keep it not as, uh, not as explosive if you're a defense and more explosive if, uh, if you're an offense. But uh, yeah, what's going on with the Huskies, man? Their offense is taking turns messing up. Uh, Dylan Morris has taken a lot of heat. Their quarterback, offensive coordinator, has taken some heat, and rightfully so when, when you don't perform at that level. But when you turn on the film, and this is almost – I lived a little bit of this in 2016 at USC. Everyone keeps taking turns. The offense line messes up one play. The receivers don't win a one-on-one on the next play. The quarterback makes an error. Then it's a bad play call, and it feels like they're literally taking turns, which – is hard because that means you have more issues to fix, but it's good in the sense that it's not like you turn the film and say, man, they're getting a bunch of physical beats or they don't have the talents or anything of that nature. Yeah. And you know, they recently lost to Michigan, obviously. And that game was, wasn't that lopsided as the score suggests, even though Michigan's D line did have the kind of field day with the Washington O line. I want to get into real quick before we start talking about some FBS stuff, you alluded to USC, you were under center in 2016, taking on Alabama. Your old coach was recently let go. Can you give us some quick thoughts on Coach Helton uh, and the USC football position overall, the coaching position overall? What do you think USC needs for that next leader of the Trojans? Yeah, it was quite the Monday for me. I do the Monday night radio show for SC and was gearing up to interview Clay. And at lunchtime that day, he said he's, he's no longer the head man. And we had the, the AD and, and the new head coach, Dante Williams, on Monday night. Uh, quick thoughts. It felt like time. The word I keep coming back to is relieved within the SC fan base. I think sometimes there's anger, frustration, excitement uh, is oftentimes the case when, when you, when you have to, from a fan's perspective, when you, when you make a change like that, but uh, it was the, the hot seat was so hot for so long. And I don't know if I've ever seen another coach have that run that, uh, that, that, that clay had in terms of just 
you know, going through multiple ADs and, and being on the hot seat, hot seat and whatnot. But at the end of the day, Clay had uh, great rapport with most of his players. And I think that's why he was able to stick around for a very long time. But uh, I, I will say this. I was at SC from, like I said, 13 to 16. And the program was in a really bad spot in 15 when uh, the, the Steve Sarkeesian left and whatnot and that whole deal. And people forget, but you fast forward six years. And even though SC isn't winning national titles, they're on a much better trajectory, believe it or not, even having just fired their coach than they were six years ago, five years ago, or the last time that we went through this. So I still think SC is a premier job. Uh, if you're a coach that's looking to make the next jump, I mean, there's every resource you could imagine at SC ready to create a championship roster. And that roster as constructed right now is a very good roster. So I'm sure it'll attract uh, a top head man. That's right, Urban. I mean, I'm sorry. No, I'm not. Yeah. Urban. Anyway, um, we'll leave that alone. Urban's in Jacksonville. Uh, but that is pretty funny, though, that he's already getting asked questions on that. Uh, let's dive into the the FBS discussion here, because first few weeks of the season, I mentioned a couple of these games that you called some of these upsets, but there's been some nice wins for teams. Georgia really stifling Clemson defensively, obviously UCLA uh, beating LSU, the Ducks winning at Ohio State last week. We saw what happened with Arkansas and Texas. Um, what are some things that jump out to you in the first few weeks so far in the college football season? Oregon's front of mind for me right now. Um, and not only because they beat Ohio State, but how they beat Ohio State. If, you, if we had talked 10 years ago, the only way Oregon was ever going to beat uh, a powerhouse Big Ten team or a powerhouse SEC team was with speed, was on the edge, was with wrinkles in their offense and, you know, getting out in space. But Oregon, they did some of that. Don't get me wrong. But they straight up beat up. Ohio State in the trenches. Their offensive line got it done. Defense line without two of their best players and the best player in college football were able to go into the horseshoe and get it done. So Oregon is a, a team that is very intriguing to me. It's a Pac-12 North that isn't as strong to date. So an opportunity for them. Oregon does not play SC in the regular season and obviously vice versa. So just an intriguing, an intriguing lineup there. And I'll stick with the West Coast because I know your uh, your audience might not get as as much uh, as much vibe with the UCLA Bruins. Also, another Oregon uh, related guy and Chip Kelly, obviously now at UCLA, they're doing some good things. And the past few years, he's taken a lot of crit criticism. I've been on a lot of shows that were calling for Chip Kelly and calling for a change in regime, but you visually can see the roster has elevated. It's matured. It's much more physical. I was extremely impressed with their defense against LSU. And then their running back, Zach Charbonnet and Britton Brown, they brought it to the LSU Tigers. And that couple with DTR, who can do some good things at the quarterback position. And UCLA is a, tree, a team that's been, it's not been a good football team the past few years that now uh, I really think is going to be in, in contention on, out here on the West Coast. What are some, uh, there's a bunch of upcoming matchups. I don't necessarily want to get into the games this weekend, um, but uh, upcoming matchups that you're looking at, there's Notre Dame playing at Wisconsin. The Ducks still have a couple of road games. They play at Stanford in a few weeks. Alabama heads to A&M uh, in a few weeks. What are some upcoming matchups that Max Brown's looking at to say, this could shape how the CFB top four uh, end up looking? It's a really good question. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm not as well versed in, in, in the weeks ahead, but the one that you need to just mention at the end, the Alabama and A&M game is interesting for me only because it feels like A&M has the best shot to uproot Alabama on that side of the division. And if they don't get it done, you're kind of looking down the road saying, man, is this just another road where 
you know, we can speculate about the team's going to be in contention, but Alabama was on a fast track to the national championship and there's no, there's nothing anyone can say about it. But a and a team that feels like they could uproot them. And I know there's people listening that are saying, Max, they almost just lost to Colorado, but I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and say, maybe it was just early season, uh, early season struggles per se. Um, what else though? I, I think just intrigue. Once again, I'll stick with the, the, the teams I know best, but the, the Utahs, the Arizona States out West ranked teams, teams that have good quarterback play teams that have strong defenses. What's what kind of jump can they make? And I'll be up in, in Seattle this Saturday, like a reference to call Arkansas state, Washington and Washington. They were people's national dark horse, not PAC 12 dark horse, national dark horse to make a run. They're obviously and two they're struggling, but it's a talented roster. having not even touched conference play yet. If they can get things back on track this week, don't sleep on the Huskies. Yeah. And a few Pac-12 matchups that are coming up in a few weeks, Arizona State, who's ranked currently as of this taping, they, they had to UCLA in a few weeks. Um, let's do some quick hits, Max. Um, real quick, Heisman pick. I know it's so early in the season. And obviously, Spencer Rattler is playing well. Um, we've seen a couple of uh, Jack Cohen at, at Notre Dame is playing pretty well. The Wisconsin transfer. Who, who is somebody that you're looking at right now that could potentially win the Heisman Trophy in December? Yeah, who's uh, who's out there? Rattler's a good one. Um, I mean, I got to give credit where credit is due. And Bryce or uh, Bryce Young. I mean, you're looking at uh, Alabama's quarterback, and I, I know he was a name that the college football loyalists knew, but maybe the average college football fan is yeah, still sleeping a little bit on the Alabama quarterback position. Hard to sleep when he's getting the NIL deals that uh, that he's brought in. But I got to give credit where credit's due. And you look at the offense and the potential that he has and what that roster has as well. He's a name that's front of mind. Um, who else is interesting? In terms of a, a sleeper quarterback, he's a West Coast guy that now is on the East Coast, Virginia Tech. Braxton Burmeister, I don't know if Virginia Tech's got the legs to uh, make a championship run so he could win the Heisman. But he's a quarterback, man. I was awfully impressed that first week, I think he can play at a high level. And that's the side of the ACC that's every year, literally a new team wins. And he's a quarterback that's got a lot of talent, was very highly recruited out here on the West Coast. I used to actually train with him when I was playing. So he's a quarterback that uh, keep your eyes on, uh, keep your eyes on him. Great insight there. I didn't know that. Uh, obviously, the Vatek, the atmosphere, Blacksburg, you know, a game against North Carolina. There was no chance North Carolina was going to walk in there with a win. But somehow, obviously, the, the Huskies, uh, excuse me, the, uh, Virginia Tech, the Hokies won that game. Listen, Max, um, before we get into the, the college football final four, and I have you predict you know, weeks from now who will be in that. Um, how tough is it to prepare for a Nick Saban defense? You are the only person on this show right now that has done that. So give us some insight into what that game week preparation looked like for you. It was an entire off season preparation. I had him, I had him week one, which I guess was a good thing. Get them before they're rolling, but it's also a tough thing because your own team, your own team is uh, working out the kink, so to speak. But uh, Nick Saban does a great job. Uh, it, it's, it's the fine line of sticking to what you do and if you're Alabama sticking to what you do defensively and saying, Hey, force the offense to adjust to us with also being able to have enough in your defensive playbook to make things confusing on a quarterback and mix things up. And I'll always remember 
They are a cover four team uh, to their core, but they do a great job of disguising and and bringing in wrinkles of, of, of rotating to a one high. And for people that might not know the ins and outs of, of, of reads and whatnot, but your entire read changes, whether there's one high uh, safety in the middle of the field, or if there's two safeties and Alabama did a great job of disguising what coverage they're bringing to the park and, and shifting those um, shifting that uh, th- those coverages. And I'll, I'll never forget when we were, it was a Monday as we were prepping for Alabama and we were going through their depth chart and I'll never forget. They go, Oh, we got to attack the field corner. That's where they're weak or that's where we can expose them. And then I like look at the field corner, uh, his bio and it was like freshman sec freshman first team or whatever. So he's a guy who's played guy who's produced guy who's on the fast track, probably the NFL. So preparing for that defense was tough. I with no hedge, will say that's the best defense in college football history. Uh, you look at, I mean, I'm, we're six years later, uh, Tomlinson, their tackle and, uh, uh, what's his name? Plays for the Reds. Yeah. Minka Fitzpatrick. You have, uh, the, the safeties, the safety for the bears. Um, you have Sean Dion Hamilton, Ruben Foster, both in the NFL, uh, at the three defensive linemen still starting. And ironically enough, the sec defensive player of the year candidate, Tim Williams, he might be one of the only starters not in the NFL right now. So, uh, that defense got after you for sure. Yeah. A little scary. Uh, I'm glad it was you, not me. Uh, so listen, Max, um, t- we're going to get into your show in a second because you talked, you talked a little bit there, gave us some X's and O's and we're going to get into pocket presence in a second. The great work you're doing there on the PAC 12 insider and PAC 12 network now app. Um, but top four college football playoff when it's all said and done, we know Alabama is going to be there. Who are the other three teams? I'll go Oklahoma only because I was hopeful Ohio State, you know, could 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 test them and whatnot. Obviously, they they've stubbed their toe, and I'm looking across the rest of Big Twelve, and I don't see a, another team that can really shock them. It would have to be it would have to be Oklahoma stubbing their own toe, and we saw that week one. I mean, they almost they almost lost to Tulsa, I believe it was. But at the end of the day, with the quarterback they have, Lincoln Riley, and that roster, the defense. Uh, more so than maybe in years past. I love Oklahoma. I like Oregon in there. I like Oregon because I think Oregon's legit. I like Oregon because I think they found a quarterback that can elevate their game. I love their running game. You talk about a Heisman dark horse. Uh, here's the answer I should have gave you. C.J. Verdell, keep your eye on him. I mean, the the college football world saw what he could do against Ohio State with the the two or three rushing touchdowns and almost 200 yards on the on the ground. He's been doing that the past two or three years at Oregon Um, when their roster was a little less. I mean, I know they had Justin Herbert, but they still ran, ran the rock through him. So keep an eye on him. Dark horse. So I'll go Oklahoma, Alabama, Oregon. And um, let me see here. I'll go, gosh, Mike, this is boring, but I think I got to go. I got to go Clemson. I mean, I don't want to make up hot takes just to make them up, but even with the one loss, I think they can run the table. and That's a roster that's talented enough to be there at the end. And when you talk about, oh, other one-loss teams, A&M, you go with Georgia, maybe. Actually, check that. Let me throw Georgia in there. Georgia, JT Daniels, what a cool story that could be. As a guy who had to transfer away from SC, I can relate to the chip on, the, on his shoulder that he has. I would, I would love to see him, you know. Prove the naysayers wrong. Lead Georgia to a national championship contention. So I'll go. Uh, I'll, I'll go. I'll throw him in there as well. 
The dogs fans listening will be happy with that. Uh, Max, let's get into your show because I was alluding to it at the beginning. I'm watching Monday Night Football. Everyone's texting me about the Peyton and Eli show on ESPN2 that was simulcast. And they're talking about all the great work that Peyton was doing, breaking down the calls at the lines, the checks, the audibles that Derek Carr and, and Lamar Jackson were making. Your show, Pocket Presence, really analyzes a lot of the game tape um, and gives fans that insight from a quarterback's lens. Take us through what that show is like and, and, and what your hopes and aims are for that show. Yeah, thanks for calling it out. It's uh, exciting stuff. When I got into broadcasting, when I was done playing in 2018, um, the advice I got from every mentor of mine was, hey, make your own content and you have the ability to get your own voice out there. You don't have to have a network take a chance on you, so to speak. And so 2018, I made my own YouTube videos in my kitchen, breaking down Pac-12 games. And that's what got me on the radar. That got me my first ESPN interview as an analyst uh, with ESPN Salt Lake, breaking down Utah and was able to give me content to pitch to networks and say, Hey, this is me. I know it's unique. I know it's weird being in the kitchen, but I'm hustling. I'm trying to make things happen. And that sparked it. That got me uh, my agent at the time, which helped me get the next gig. And, you know, just like life, you, you kind of build upon the next thing. And so I say all that because um, the head of talent at PAC 12 saw my YouTube videos. They liked it. It was the, the comp I give is remember when Dan Orlovsky would do the breakdowns in his, uh, in his basement, doing little X's and O's on the, on his, on his whiteboard. Well, I said, Hey man, I can do that. And what happens if I add more production value to it? So it's more of a show. It's more of a, you know, full on episode rather than just a clip in the basement type of thing. And that netted out well with folks. And so PAC 12 this year, fast forward a couple of years, they said, Hey, we uh, have a new streaming platform um, or a new content platform. I should say need some content on it. would love to hire you to just bring your YouTube videos to the platform. So they're, 13 to 17 minute videos. And I dive in, I mean, dive in deep is kind of a buzzword, but we really go all in on um, one topic, whatever that, whatever jumps off the, the film to me about the top Pac-12 game from the week prior. I try to break it down. We bring in live uh, game clips and um, I break it down, get on the whiteboard a little bit. And uh, it's really exciting. I, I make the comment often to football fans, and I mean this with no disrespect, but I think the average fan in football compared to a baseball or basketball or, or whatever sport it is, I think they're less knowledgeable about what actually is going on than their counterpart in a different sport. I think an average basketball fan understands, you know, triangle offense at a, at a high level or, um, or at, a, at a base level or pick and roll or rotating on defense. But with football, there's and and what no disrespect, but there are so many moving pieces as to why something happens, why an offensive coordinator is 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 uh, is calling a certain play, and there's a reason these coordinators are getting paid so much money because it is not easy. And uh, just try and do you know go under the hood, so to speak, and give fans a, a look inside of why a coordinator is calling what they're doing and why a play uh, happened the way it did. Couldn't agree more. I think that's a, a great analysis analogy about the different sports. And I totally feel that way. And that's why I watch your show uh, pocket presence on the PAC 12 insider PAC 12 now app. You can check out Max Brown as a color analyst on stadium networks, the PAC 12 networks, check out his YouTube channel. I'm going to promote his YouTube channel for him and all the YouTube clips that he has up there. Uh, Max Brown, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. I truly appreciate it. Congrats to you and Victoria um, and continued success, man. Keep it going. 
Likewise, my guy. Appreciate that. I'll tell uh, Vic. I got a, I got another congrats and still working on calling her my fiance, not my girlfriend. I've been falling into that trap a couple of times, but uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, we'll, we'll promote her show too, Real Pod. If you're, if you're listening out there, she's got a great show. So check that out too. Thanks again, Max. Thanks, Mike. All right. That was my buddy, Max Brown. Fantastic job as always. Max is, is a great listen to. Um, I was watching that, that Montana uh, Washington game, uh, mainly for him, but also, you know, you see an upset alert come into your phone. Uh, Montana with an interception, their linebacker with an interception in the closing minutes of that game. I was like, man, this guy's front row seat for two big time FCS, uh, you know, upsets over FBS schools. I mentioned earlier, eight FBS, FCS, excuse me, upsets over FBS schools earlier this season in the college football season. So a lot of chaos so far. We've seen some close games, Notre Dame, Florida State in week one. If you want to check out the FCS power rankings as presented by Stats Perform and the Analyst, head to the analyst.com, click on our FCS uh, page there, and you'll see all the top 25 rankings of all the FCS teams like Max alluded to Eastern Washington, Jacksonville State, Delaware, Montana, and the rest and how they shape out. Um, check out Max's show Pocket Presence on the Pac-12 Network Now app. You can catch him calling a game on the Pac-12 Networks and Stadium Networks for this show. You want more episodes from this show? Head to theanalyst.com, click on the podcast tab, and you'll be able to see all of our episodes and some more podcasts that are available on theanalyst.com. As always, I'm Mike Leon. We'll catch everybody next time.